0: And you can sort of sit on, sit on that mountain of failure and, and realize that your success came off of the back of those failures. Um, which is useful for realizing that like human beings natural state is failure. And if you keep engaging that state, if you learn, eventually you'll reach success.
1: All right. So hello, everyone, and welcome to the AI stories podcast. I'm Neil Lizer. I'm a data scientist at Iwoca, and I will be your host. So today, our guest is Kyle Cranon. Kyle first studied electrical engineering and computer science at Berkeley. And after that, he had a bunch of internships. He worked at Condati and at NVXL, but in 2019, he ends up joining Nvidia as an intern. He grows there, does a bunch of deep learning stuff. He works on recommender systems, on time series models, on graph neural networks. And he's actually currently still at Nvidia. He is a senior deep learning software engineer. So if you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to my YouTube channel and leave a five star review. Alright, let's start now. Kyle, hello. Are you ready for an episode of AI Stories?
0: Yeah, Neil, um, thanks for having me. I'm I'm really excited to be here and, and to tell my story.
1: Well, very excited to have you. First of all, just tell me how did you get into this world of AI, machine learning, deep learning? How how did you get there?
0: Yeah, so uh, I guess to start at the very beginning. Uh you know, my, as for my background, I grew up in Silicon Valley, both my parents were electrical engineers. Um, and they wanted to be, you know, to go into computer science, obviously. And 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 I I wanted to as (laughs) well. I was good at math. I, I, I knew I liked computers. I grew up playing video games and breaking apart old, old printers to figure out how they worked. Um, and essentially, uh, I started getting internships in high school I, you know I was in the lucky position where I could was able to do that um, and my first I'd say real internship was at a company called sosta and sosta was a uh, cloud testing company in um, in in South Bay Area um, so such a mountain view um, and uh, what Sosta was you know sort of about was they were using, um simulation essentially to figure out how a website would respond to the load of a you know of let's say a million people trying to connect to Ticketmaster because Taylor Swift is selling her tickets. Um, and uh I thought at the at the time that I wanted to do uh like full stack or or front end um development. And I tried it for that summer and I discovered that it really wasn't for me. It was a bit too, let's say it was just a bit too non-intuitive for me. I didn't really click mm-hmm. and I, and I, you know, decided I didn't really want to do it, but I did see within the company that there were a bunch of interesting stuff, where there was a bunch of interesting stuff going on in data science. So I, um, you know, I, I sort of filed that away mentally and said, Hey, if I get another internship, you know, maybe I should try it in data science. Um, well, I didn't do an internship after that in high school and I you know went to college at Berkeley. And um I guess contemporaneous with this, the founder of uh Sosta or the founder of Sosta had exited his company, sold it to Akamai Technologies, and um had uh wanted to find a new company, but he couldn't really hire anyone he'd previously worked with, really, because you know he you know, he's just sold his company and they were all mm-hmm. at his old company. Um, but he could hire interns because, you know, like we were, we hadn't been there for a while. I, I didn't work at SIST in two years. It, it was, you know, both legally and, and contractually and morally okay to, you know, bring me on. So he brought me and a couple of interns on to build the MVP of, of the product of, of Kandati. And the idea behind Kandati was a, um, sort of a data science workbench for, uh, marketers. It's, it's different now, uh, you know, the product is pivoted, but at, at the time that's what it was. And that was sort of when I got my first dose of full on data science. I worked on pipelines and reporting and uh, a couple of like notebooks and, 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 um, data science projects in Julia, which is the language we, we were choosing mm-hmm. to use at the time. Um, and. Essentially, I got bit by the data science bug. I, I loved everything data, data science related in that time, like just being able to visualize data and, and to, you know, get something out of data, um, you know, either, you know, from your analyst perspective by sifting through the data and visualizing it yourself or by using models to extract value from data that sort of just hit me as something that was incredibly poignant and it was key to the company too. So something that I wanted to be involved in, in that, in that company. And, um, you know, I ended that summer and, uh, you know, I started taking online courses because I still had a little bit of time before school and I actually took, um, Andrew Ring's deep learning AI course. Um, Mm -hmm. it's probably one of the staples that a lot of people know of, Um, and I like instantly fell in love with the idea of, of deep learning. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I took that course and, you know, consumed it in like, I think it's, it's supposed to be like a four week course. I consumed it in like a week. Um, you know, I was just basically doing ups, you know, uh, lesson after lesson, after lesson, after lesson. And, um, I got really deep into it and, you know, that was my sophomore year year of college. So um, at Berkeley, the way the classes are structured, you can't really take machine learning classes until you finish your prereqs. There's like a bottom rung of classes and then you can move to any elective at the top. So um, I rushed to finish all of my other classes as soon as possible. So I could take ML classes at Berkeley, you know, as quick as possible. So I finished my, you know, my physics, my E classes. I finished my, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know my discrete math and my you know computer architecture classes, um, just so I could get to them quicker. And um, in software year, I also took an ML class at Berkeley. Um, but sort of in that time frame, uh, I decided I wanted to work on deep learning specifically. And I was you know not many companies are going to allow, um, let's say, a, a software at, at Berkeley to to work on deep learning. You know full, full stop. Um, but I found a startup named MVXL that was working on hardware acceleration for, um, uh, for specifically computer vision. And it was called MVXL. Um, my historical experience was with computer vision. So it was a good match and they brought me on and I, I worked on, um, uh, basically FPGA compilation for, um, common kernels in, in, in ResNet, uh, 101. one-on-one and, um, among other things, uh, you know, my, my resume takes a lot more about mm-hmm. that, but, um, that summer I, 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 decided two things. One, I don't like working directly on hardware because when, if you're working on FPGA compilation, that's essentially what you're doing, right? You're, you're putting the logic on the gates in the FPGA, in order to you know elicit some output. Two, I really like deep learning, um, <laughs> so you know I decided from then on you know I I want to work with deep learning, and that sort of takes me to Nvidia, where you know I came to Nvidia, or I, not I came to Nvidia, it, Nvidia approached me, uh, or a recruiter approached me and said, hey, you know, like it looks like you're interested in deep learning, would you be interested in working on a deep learning algorithms team? And uh, as they say, the rest is history, right? You know, I. I interview, join the team immediately and 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 have really just fallen in love with deep learning even more and, and um, you know, working at a video as well.
1: So you touched on a lot of things here. Let's yeah, I'm sorry. Go, let's go. No, no, that's great. Great overview of what you've done. Let's go through them one by one. Got a few questions. First, so just to recap, you worked at Condati. That's where you started getting into data science. You then had another internship at NVXL where you did more deep learning stuff and then you ended up joining NVIDIA. And yep. obviously in the middle of all of this, you got really interested by deep learning and tried to take as many deep learning courses as you could. At
0: yeah, I packed, them in. I packed them in. Mm-hmm.
1: So first thing is Condati. That's where you kind of started to get into data science. So first of all, what is the company doing? Like it was related to marketing, but what exactly did they do? And you mentioned you loved playing around with data. What kind of data was this? Yeah. What kind of visualization did you make there? I'm yeah, interested so, to um, see.
0: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Kandati, the thesis of Kandati initially going in is that the tools that marketers have to ingest and utilize their marketing data and visualize it are actually not that good. So Kandati's initial product, which has now since been you know, it's, it's something else now, um, was called CDWB, which is Kandati workbench. And the idea is, um, marketing data generally is like heterogeneous and very multi-source. So you have your Google ads, you have your Facebook ads, you have your, you know, all the channels by which you're doing marketing mm-hmm. and the data that they return is really heterogeneous, meaning it's not, you know, it's, it's not homogenized or, or, mm-hmm. you know, put into a format where they're compatible with each other. So Kanadi, the first thing that they did, and this was before I was here, sort of wrote an adapter layer between each of those um, data sources so that they they could be, you know, uh, homogenized and enriched so that they'd all fit within the the scope of a single table. Um, And then the second thing, I guess, that that they did on top of this was now that they have all the data in one, you know, enriched data source, the goal is to provide, you know, visualizations and, and indicators for your marketers to determine what's going well and what's not going well in their marketing. So the type of data that we're working with is like, you know, like we have this ad out for X amount of time. This is the number of engagements. This is how much these ads cost to run. And the goal is to either, you know, do something prescriptive, like, you know, like, Oh, you should turn this off. That, that wasn't really in my time there. That that happened a lot mm-hmm. later. That's more what Kandali's current product looks like. Um, but the original thought was... Do you even know, can you even visualize, do you even know like what your, what your ROAS is and, you know, what, you know, which campaigns are trailing, which campaigns are doing well, what about these campaigns is going well? So um, the goal was to bring that or using data to bring that information to the forefront.
1: Okay, it makes sense. So it's a product that they're selling to other companies to better understand their what they're marketing. doing, how well they're doing in terms of marketing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and if you guys don't know, right, like, uh, basically, you know, every company on earth now is, is moving their marketing org, or not moving their marketing org, is adding a supplemental data org to their marketing org to make their campaigns work better. You know, it, marketing and, and AI, at this point, go very hand in hand.
1: Yeah. And the challenge, I guess, is that, as you mentioned, you're doing marketing on Facebook, on Google, on whatever platform and they don't have the same kind of data right No. Um, google might have some rules might not have the same name for the rules of each or the columns of each data set than facebook and it might not have exactly the same data so you wanted to join everything together
0: yeah and they, they even have completely different indicators right like like google may have you know some tag that you know just exists on on google ads or you know Facebook may have some ML signal that, you know, like, oh, hey, this ad is performing poorly, but it's uninterpretable. It's just, you know, a float. It's like, oh, this has quality value X. Um, so that's really heterogeneous, right? Yeah, that's hard to, like, you can't, hmm. it's not comparable. Like, there's no, like, m- meter stick that you can measure both of them on. So you sort of have to figure out a way to get them into the same format. And I, I wasn't really involved with that. I wasn't involved with the data engineering part. I was more involved with the um, modeling and, and building features to actually support, you know, marketing data
1: works. So what kind of modeling exactly? Like how well the company is doing? Mm, More like how well is an individual
0: ad doing, right? Like you want to visualize an ad or visualize a number of ads and say, you know, Hey, drilling down here, 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 and here, you know, like, Oh, this group of ads isn't doing well, but this one, one member of this family is doing well. Like, why is that? Like, let's look at the data. Like, Oh, maybe it's. Maybe you're getting a lot of bang for your buck because that ad word you're using is incredibly cheap and you've shown it to ten thousand people and only five have responded, but you know, you're you're still getting good return on ad spend, which is, you know, uh, uh like the bottom line metric for for marketers. Um yeah, so it's more surfacing stuff like that
1: do you build an algorithm to interpret this or is it more some kind of data visualization? Like you play around with part, the data. At,
0: at that point it was more visualization. Like I wasn't doing any modeling on, on this data. Um, yeah. So cool. yeah, most, mostly, mostly visualization, but compared to, you know, compared to what current, what existed to you know hybridize those data sources, right. Um, that marking data isn't, uh, like, just having those visualizations and having that information is super valuable for marketers because they, they, they wouldn't be able to get this insight if they weren't able to drill down and, and, and look into each of these, these ad families.
1: Exactly. You don't always need to build models to yeah. build something useful. Of course, yeah. And then you became in love with deep learning. You mentioned you took this course. What do you think... Why is it that you liked deep learning so much compared to, you know, data visualization and maybe more traditional AI.
0: Yeah. So there are a couple of reasons, right? Um, one, I mean, I feel like deep learning sort of enables these, well, it enables a couple of things. It enables you to learn on vast quantities of data, which is, you know, really interesting, right? Like it, it, you know some data just cannot be visualized, right? Like there are just too many data points. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever tried to plot a scatter plot with built, you know, like hundreds of millions or or tens of millions of of examples, but it it looks at that point, it becomes a density plot. And even then it becomes very muddy. Um, So sometimes humans just can't, don't have the bandwidth to make a bunch Mm -hmm. of decisions, right? Sometimes a lot of times it has to be an algorithm and, and First of all, like that that throughput scale, where an algorithm can do a lot more than a human in a given amount of time, was very interesting to me because it allows you to, you know, if if the algorithm can mimic a human, you can ten x, 100 x human effort, a million x. You know, it's uh, it, it allows you to you know really expand the scope of what one human can do. And the other reason was I just re- really for me stuff that I like intuitively intuitively clicks. Um, and deep learning just clicked. Um like it made sense, like you know, the math behind it made sense. Like like I, I tend to like math. I like to read math papers and you know, read the the math behind, you know, AI algorithms. It's it's a lot large part of my job, right? So mm-hmm. um uh like the idea that I get to work with math and at the same time work with something that like takes that math and, and makes a Outsize impact on you know whatever problem it's applied to is, is is a cool concept, right? Especially for a math nerd in you know his first year of college.
1: <laughs> so so you like the fact that you could analyze a lot of data, and you like the maths behind it. You found it quite interesting, and so mm-hmm. you thought, yeah, let's dig further into that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, um, a large part of you know. Why I liked it is like, okay. Like visualization is moderately immediately intuitive because it's visual. Um, but what I found that I liked about deep learning and, and why I found deep learning intuitive in addition to just liking math is that, um, like architectural decisions in deep learning usually have like specific motivation. Um, and once you have like sort of the basics around deep learning, you under, you understand that motivation a lot, or like you can really understand the motivation motivation behind architecture design. Like, you know, let's, let's take a new model, like diffusion models. Um, you know, they've been making a huge splash in generative AI. And like, I guess not, not in hind like in hindsight, it's easy to say this, but like diffusion models at their core are actually like pretty intuitive. Um, The idea is that you model every pixel in the image as, you know, part of some distribution and you iteratively add noise, um, you know, Gaussian noise until you, you know, you're sorry, you use a source image and a source caption and you iteratively add noise, uh, like a number of layers of noise. And the job of the model during training is just to remove that noise to get to an image. Okay. So that, that, that makes sense, right? Like you make an increasingly noisy image and eventually like the model realizes how to take almost all the noise out of image, uh, out of the, out of the result and get an image with, you know, how do we generate stuff out of that? Right? Like how do we, how do we, how do we generate actual images that don't exist? Well, the answer is you just give it pure Gaussian noise and it removes the Gaussian noise to make an image. And you know, that while crazy that it works is moderately intuitive. Um, so yeah, like that, that's one example I could, I could give more if, 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 uh, you know, but that, that really appeals to me that there's, there's like, sometimes, you know, when deep learning, you don't know exactly why stuff works, but the intuition behind why stuff works is usually there. Sometimes there's just things like, I I don't know, there's some unexplained things in deep learning. There there, there are actually quite a few, but for the most part, like the design choices behind this make up like almost immediate sense to me. Um, and that's, that's what I liked about deep learning. Um,
1: yeah. So just to clarify diffusion models are models which generate images, right? So for example, you give as input a prompt or a text yeah, and yeah. the model will generate an image based on this yep. text, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. That, that, that's what I mean. So diffusion, which would be generative, uh, you know, Text to image, or sometimes text plus image to image, like EDIFI. But yeah, basically.
1: Yeah, and so you like the fact that for every kind of problem, you've got some kind of specific architecture, which mathematically makes sense.
0: Mathematically, and just like by human intuition. Another example of this would be like in recommender systems, like handling categorical values, right? A A categorical value is a value that doesn't, it's not continuous. It doesn't fall on like a number line. So an example would be like categories, like your physical location, like what state you're doing, a mm-hmm. you know, what state you're in, for example, that's a categorical or what country you're in. And um, you know, if you try to feed that into a deep learning model, which, you know, like a fully connected layer, right, which expect dense values, that's going to be, that's going to be nonsense. That feature is not going to be useful. Mm-hmm. But what you eventually realize with that is that you can add expressivity to categoricals by embedding them, right? So you can take a categorical, you can have a, a learnable matrix of, of uh, values where, you know, the columns are essentially IDs and the rows are, or it, it depends on your interpretation. But essentially, one of the axes, axes is the IDs and one of the axes is some dimension that you want to embed that categorical into. And you take the categorical, you plug it into the embedding table and your output is a vector that can be a dense vector that can be used as input to the model. And that makes sense because, you know, fully connected layers, deep learning, like the deep part of deep learning usually focuses on dense, like vectors. Mm-hmm. It doesn't focus on, you know, like a categorical, which is completely different. So, um, yeah, it's just that type of intu- intuition that just makes sense and, 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 and like, it just clicks for me. It's hard. It's a bit hard to explain.
1: Doesn't it feel a bit also kind of like magic? I don't know. For me, I don't know. I'm not an expert in deep learning like you. I don't dive as deep into the maths. I know the basics like CNNs, LSTMs, but for example, diffusion models, that's, yeah. Um, I haven't digged into that, but doesn't it feel almost like magic a bit? Yeah. It's, Even it's when not- I train, Yeah. I, I always feel like it's magical.
0: It's it's definitely like I feel like that was what got me into deep learning initially. It's like oh, the magic of just pressing train and then seeing that it you know mm-hmm. you, the loss is going down. It's you know ninety eight percent accuracy of predicting what type of flower it is. That that is very magical at, at least at the start. But what kept me really was the logic behind it, uh, not necessarily the magic of it. Like what like at some point at least for me, the magic faded and it was Mm -hmm. more about intuition and about like just really having an, like an intuitive understanding of, of what's going on because I, you know, obviously read a lot and, 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 and and I can't claim to have an intuitive understanding about everything. Mm -hmm. Right. But um, Mm -hmm. the stuff that does exist in the world of deep learning makes, makes sense to me in, in a way that, you know, some other fields like, you know, for example, like making UI doesn't make sense to me.
1: So I want to focus on NVIDIA because we're going to talk a bit deeper into deep learning and the things you've built there. You started as an intern and then, well, you kind of grew. You're still at NVIDIA. It's been what, three years now, something like that? Two and a half. Two, two, years, half. two and a half. So yeah, what was the first project that you worked on? When yeah, you so
0: tutorials? the first project that I worked on, um so in computer vision, there's, um, a model called MaskRCNN, and MaskRCNN is a heavyweight object detection and bounding model. And essentially if you've ever seen those videos where every person in a frame is outlined and there's a bounding box around them and it predicts that them as a bounding box, that's, I mean, that, that might be YOLO or other models now, but at, in mid 2019, that was largely, you know, mask RCNN was mo- one of the most, uh, common models for that task. And essentially, um, my task was, you know, given okay, just for a little bit of context, uh, in 2019 TensorFlow two was just starting to come out, uh, like there were nightly builds of it. Um, it was still a little bit buggy, you know, the process for building models in TensorFlow two, wasn't really sorted out. You know, they just introduced eager mode, a bunch of different stuff. And, um my manager presented me with a bunch of projects and and there was this project and the, the scope is essentially, we have models in TensorFlow one. We have mask in TensorFlow one. We want to build it in TensorFlow two and understand what are the issues along the way that come with building a model in TensorFlow two. And, um, I thought this was going to be easy. Little did I know this was actually super hard and large scope project, um, because TensorFlow two was still new and there were a lot of moving parts. Um, yeah. That's, that's the core of the project.
1: Did you manage in the end to rebuild the model with TensorFlow too?
0: Yeah. So, um, I did actually, but there's a funny story about that. Um, we got the original implementation of, uh, uh, mask CNN from a Google repository and assumed since, you know, it was, uh, because we did, we we had a PyTorch version of Mask r already. We didn't have a uh, TensorFlow version. So we got an original version from Google, Google repository in TensorFlow 1. And we assumed it was okay because it was in, in the model zoo. Um, what we realized... Well, so throughout the summer, I'm working on this model. Like I'm, I'm getting it, you know, trying to build it to convergence, right? Like achieving convergence at scale is really important um, for my team. I, I actually should clarify about what my team is right after I finish the sentence. But... Um, so, I built I built the model. I you know got it working in TensorFlow 2. That was actually pretty quick. And then we realized that the convergence accuracy is not as high as expected, and that's a problem because we need it to be as high as expected. We don't want to release a model that is you know underperforming the literature or underperforming uh, previous versions of it. So, you know, we, we we do a bunch of study. We look at the model architecture itself. I literally look like layer by layer, making sure that the weights are the same shape. <laughs> Um, and mm-hmm. I can't find anything and, and I've, I've been working the model. And one of the things I suggested near the end was, Hey, um, are we sure that data loading is going correctly? And, um, unfortunately I didn't really have time to pursue this thesis, right? Like we were looking into multi-GPU problems. Like, could it be Horovod introducing an issue because Horovod for those that don't know is a distributed training framework that was targeted at TensorFlow and it got integrated into TensorFlow too. And there was, we were unsure of how stable that implementation was at the time. Um, turns out it was pretty pretty good, but um, uh, our issue eventually we figured out was that somehow the data loader had changed in functionality, and the data loader was actually only uh, basically the the amount of validation data per epic was shrinking, which made no sense. Uh, like the validation set was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, or the effective validation set, um, and uh, that resulted in us at the end having a validation set that only reflected like the last third of the data, which apparently is the, you know, in, in training was the weakest part or not not the weakest part, but like the the part of the data set that, um, you know, has the lowest accuracy um, just by coincidence. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that, that resulted in, you know, an extra month of effort after I left to diagnose that issue because data loader issues are, are kind of, they're kind of sneaky. I'll put it that way.
1: Yeah, you never... I mean, it's so difficult to... Once you have something that works, you know, if there isn't any bugs or any error, uh, yeah. an error message that says that's wrong or that's wrong, You, if everything runs, you don't know where the bug is and it could yeah. just be everywhere. You've got this huge model. Um, so obviously it can just be anywhere.
0: Yeah, and that's, that's a really hard part about my job. You know, like... There's no like objective like oh like the the you know oh this isn't working you know here's a here's an error like there's no there's no unit test for deep learning really I mean there is kind of but I can explain how you do that but it, there's no like real unit test where it's like oh yeah like input to output this is correct um
1: yeah how, how do you debug your models then what's your or your work what's your approach because you mentioned that's part of your job yeah, what yeah. Things well you actually do?
0: Let, let's jump back a second clarify what i do at nvidia just so ever you know for, for the benefit of the audience uh, uh, so I, I work at NVIDIA, you know as mentioned and uh, i work on the deep learning algorithms team and our charter is the research implementation and optimization of state-of-the-art production ready deep, deep learning models which basically means We take academic models that we see in literature or see published online, and we work with them on GPU to make them as fast as possible, as accurate as possible, and um, generally as ready to, you know, for you to pick up and use as possible. We have an externally facing repo called NVIDIA Deep Learning Examples uh, that you can go check out any model, including my implementation of MassGuard CNN. Um, uh, But the idea is that uh, okay. So, so that, that's the idea of our team. And, uh, yeah. So sometimes we, this involves debugging models. Uh, so how do you debug a model? So, and- sorry.
1: Just, just, just to make it clear before we go into debugging models. So you're taking models from the literature and you're re-implementing them, making them more efficient and then, well, releasing them in the wild so that other people can use those models in their day-to-day or yeah, for yeah. their so own it, work. It, it,
0: in a sense, it's it's like a little bit academic, right? Like we're we're not really selling a product. Our team is not selling mm-hmm. a product, but we provide value by, by. Um, well, there are two methods by which we provide value to the company. It's one, you know, we get to prove that deep learning is best on GPU, which is great. Um, and the second thing is that we, you know, sort of having this zoo of models and having, you know, engineers constantly working on these models, like in-house allows us to sort of, determine what is going to be important in in future hardware or software or the basically the stack below us in order to accelerate those models. So, you know, like um, uh, the new generation of uh, uh, NVIDIA cards for Enterprise Hopper um, has something called a transformer engine in it. And um, that is informed by, you know, like, oh, we have a bunch of transformer models. How can we, like, how can we improve the math that goes on on GPU in order to accelerate those models up? You know, at at the at the you know framework user level.
1: So some kind of indirect. It adds indirectly. It adds value to your company. You're not directly making money from those models, but your plan is first of all to sell more GPUs, I guess, because um, it will be easier uh, to train useful models on GPUs. And two, it's also to for the long term, your company will know what future projects they have to work on.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the best way to put it is NVIDIA is a full stack company, right? Like we do literally everything in the stack. We build the base hardware, we build the compilers, we build the kernels, we build the, um, you know, the the operating system that this hardware runs, not really the operating system, but, you know, like we, we build the the, the the base languages that that these systems run on. And then we build up, whereas we build libraries like uh, NVIDIA Rapids, which is an, a GPU accelerated data science library. We build, you know, we build on top of PyTorch and we accelerate PyTorch and we accelerate TensorFlow and we accelerate a bunch of stuff. And then we get to the top level, and, and that's where we are, right? We're sitting there and we're saying, first of all, like how you know, where where could we do better? Like this helps us to us determine where where can we do do better throughout the the full stack that NVIDIA has, and. Um, you know, also, you know, which models, which architectures are going to be important.
1: Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. I, yeah, I wouldn't imagine, I wasn't aware of this kind of, well, problem solving approach, but yeah, that's actually quite great. And it's also super useful for everybody because research paper are so difficult to re-implement or to directly use. So you're doing some kind of applied research, right? Like,
0: yeah, well, it, that's a that's a, a way to put it yeah so we're, we're doing like performance and mostly performance research on on these uh, these models so the, the models that we release are generally very optimized versus their original implementations uh, you know one of my co co-workers um, just released a or just released a model that I believe was like 20x more quick than the original implementation of it. That was released. Uh, there's a, there's a Google model TFT. Uh, it's a time series model that I, I worked on, um, but he's, you know, take the lead on it. And, mm-hmm. um, he, uh, you know, he accelerated it like 20 X based off of the original implementation on GPU. Um, so there was a lot of headroom there, right? Like you can make it a lot faster and, um, you know, in doing so we, you, we make it even better on GPU, perfect GPU utilization, a hundred percent, you know, you're, you're getting, the full value out of, out of your GPU.
1: So let's go on to debugging. Now, how do you debug those models? Let's say you've got something that works. How do you make sure, yeah, you've got something that works, that runs, but you have a bug within your model. How, how do you debug that? How do you make sure that everything works as expected?
0: Yeah. So this is something that I do now. After my experience with CN, but I generally just go front to back. I start at the base. I like I, you. You essentially want to start with. I, I assume nothing about the entire model pipeline is correct. The, the The training loop's not correct. I assume you know, like, you know, like the data loader's not correct. Let's go through each of them and progressively build a foundation of of verified correctness. So that if if you know, for example, let's say let's say that the data loader is not correct, we can identify oh the data loader's not Outputting batches that are um you know well formed and uh we need to take a look at that. Or, you know, and but if we can verify, oh yeah, like the batches are all coming out as expected, it's the right number of batches, you know, it's it's the right um like we've looked at the batch content and it 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 seems correct, or in some cases you can prove verifiably that the, the batch output is correct. Okay, so you've done that, right? Once the day load is done, you can just move on to the training loop and you could say, hey, like let's let's look at everything here let's say you know like are we zeroing the gradients are we um you know making sure that uh you, you know like if we're quantizing like using automatic mixed precision which is um for, for those that don't know uh uh basically doing a lot of the computations in, in floating point 16 instead of floating point 32 uh, which accelerates the model significantly um because it's lower uh, lower low precision and and there's there's greater um you know, effective like float bandwidth because your your floats are now half the size. Um, you know, you look through all that that portion of the training loop, and then once you're once you've verifiably proven that the training loop's working, then you look into the model architecture. Model architecture, you know, if you're building off of a reference, can be easy. Uh, like if you have a model side by side, like let's say I was moving to from TensorFlow one to TensorFlow two. Um, what you can do then is you can just run the entire, you can run one batch that you know. In TensorFlow one, um, take the activations and take the weights in, in that model. Um, you know, pull them out, like put them in a file. Uh, take the same initialization, move it to TensorFlow two in your model. Do the do the exact same batch. You pickle the batch and you just feed it to the other model, and then you compare layer wise the the activations and the outputs. And you know, if those are the same, you know, hurrah, you've effectively mimicked the model. Um, and then you know if that works and it's still not working, you you have to ask yourself like, hey, like I need to look at the evolution of the loss curves. Like, is there something I'm doing wrong with respect to like optimization? Like, are we using a different optimizer, are you using different optimi- optimization parameters? And then like sometimes at the end, right, you're, you're looking at something you're know, like, oh, like like okay, maybe I, maybe I still have lower accuracy, right? What do I what I, what do I do then? Even even then, you can just check to make sure like. You know, like, oh, am I using the right metric? Like, oh, TensorFlow One uses A A AUCPR, but you know, for some reason, I'm using precision as my as my metric. Uh, You check your metrics. You check uh, that the test set is is the same across your you know different versions, And, and that's sort of generally how you debug. It's 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 a series of the component before me works, so now I move on to the next component, and we check this component. And once this works, you move on to next, 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 and that way you sort of build up a knowledge base of, of this works a hundred percent, or I'm very, I'm very confident that this works, and thus it ha- the problem has to exist later. Um.
1: Okay, so start start at the top. Make sure that what's going on at the top, at the beginning of your pipeline, works. Get some kind of Tick. Okay. I know that's not the issue. And then move on. And little by little, you eliminate part of the pipeline or, well, basically you eliminate part of the pipeline because you know that there isn't any bugs there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This th- There was actually a piece of advice that was given by my manager uh, when I was an intern. And he said, um, deep learning and working on projects like this is a very scientific process. Essentially, what you're doing when you're when you're trying to debug a model is you're presenting a hypothesis that some component is broken. And your goal is to figure out if that hypothesis is true or not. Um, so you go in and you iteratively, you know, you have your hypothesis moving in a sliding window. So you have like, oh, this, you know, like data loader is broken or, you know, like, oh, the model's broken or, oh, the optimizer loop is broken. And um, that's generally how you go through with debugging a deep learning model.
1: I would say that's the case, not even just for deep learning models, for any problem for any, that... Any, yeah, the, yeah. The, yeah. Um, I think the, Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I think deep learning might be an extreme case because it's something quite complex and quite yeah. big, right? You're dealing with something quite, comp- yeah, quite huge, like lots of layers, lots of weights. So you really need, if you don't have this rigorous pro- process of checking things one by one, You might never find the bug, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You need to be rigorous and and pace yourself because it's, you know, you have to, you're going to have to get through everything. And if you miss something, if you make an assumption that something's working when it's not, that can lead to issues.
1: So I want to now move to talking about graph neural networks. You're kind of the owner of graph neural networks at Nvidia. You worked also on recommender system and time series models, but let's focus on graph neural nets. What exactly are graph neural nets? What are you doing at the moment?
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I work on a team that works on, on graph neural networks. And what are graph neural networks? Well, first, like let's, let's lay out some taxonomy here. Uh, the first thing we need, we need to talk about is, well, like what is a graph? A graph can be essentially considered as a set of nodes representing entities and edges representing relationships between those entities. Um, so in that and that edge you know node edge re- you know relationship can extend to a lot of things. It can be uh, you know molecules, right? You can represent molecules as bonds between atoms. Uh, you can represent transaction networks as transactions between people. You can represent road networks as uh, road connections between intersections. Um, so that's what a graph is. I'm going to continue with my taxonomy, in a, uh, you know, right now. So, okay. So what is a graph? That's what a graph is. What is a heterograph? A heterograph is a type of graph that, uh, in which there are either multiple types of connections or multiple types of entities or both. Um, uh, so let's talk about what graph neural networks do. So a graph neural network at its core takes some graph of interest and encodes it. So it's, it's essentially an encoder framework, uh, you know, like, well, like, you know, in language an encoder decoder framework, it's an encoder for graphs. So we take the graph, we uh, essentially uh, do a series of aggregations and combinations of the data between every node's neighbors. So let's, I'm gonna just draw with my hands here. Let's say we have a node right here. And it's connected to like one, two, three, four neighbors. Um, when we do a layer of graph convolution, essentially what we're doing is we are taking the information that is, that is, you know, we're taking the information that is in each of those neighbors, we're creating a message from it, we're passing that message, you know, as essentially a vector to the, you know, central node, the, the one that is is key around that neighborhood and we aggregate that information via, you know, like a mean or a sum or a average or, or not, (laughs) I already said mean, but, uh, or like a max (laughs) or min. Um, and you can use that representation either. Well, you can use that representation representation, you know, again, like when you're doing the next layer. Right. So like, let's, let's say you've applied that, that collect and aggregate, you know, uh, uh, operation to all of all of the nodes within your graph. You can apply that on top of that. You can use the the features that you've already generated on each of these nodes and um, or you can use the the state that you've generated on all the nodes in order to make a next state. So like let's say you do two layers of that, then uh, let's say we have a, a uh, an extra node over here that is connected to the the, centr- the central node in our last example. <coughs> that node, is going to get the state that was calculated in the previous step, um, Mm -hmm. uh, from, you know, the message passed by our original central node. Um, and that's a very basic description of message passing there. You know, there are many, uh, if, uh, if you were to ask more about it, I would encourage you to watch videos on it because visual aid is very helpful in this case. And unfortunately I don't have a whiteboard next to me. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, the, Essential idea is you are taking a node's local neighbors and you are aggregating the information from them and you're repeating that process across the entire graph, first of all. Every layer of GNN graph convolution, you do that across the entire graph. But you add an extra layer on top of that where once you've calculated the state of all the nodes within the graph, you use those states as the input for the next layer where you propagate messages based on those states again, and, and again, and again, and again, however many layers you have. Um, until you have all the states of all the you know elements in the, in the graph, and then you can use a decoder on top of this encoder framework for any node in the graph in order to predict some meaningful attribute about the nodes or edges in the graph.
1: <laughs> so you, lay, you laid out the theoretical framework. Can you give like a very simple toy example of like a problem that you would solve using a graph network?
0: Yeah, let's 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 uh, let's go through your toy example. Um, Okay. Let's say that we're a bank and we're trying to look at transactions. So in a tran- transaction network, you and me may have some set of interactions, right? Like I might have paid you or you might have paid me or, um, something like that. And, um, you also may have interactions with other people that are like, you have a linked bank account or something. So those are two different types of relationships. So I mentioned a header graph. If, if we're talking about that, that sort of trans, you know, that sort of, multiple types of relationships like linked bank at ed- link, linked bank account versus transaction that's that indicates a header graph in this system right uh, let's say that we want to predict um, whether or not a transaction between two people is fraudulent what we do is we take our graph convolution we apply that to our entire subgraph of interest like l- like let's say we're doing three layers of, of, of Graph convolution. Mm-hmm. We take the, you know, initial layer, you know, we, uh, that, that basically means, sorry, just to clarify what that means, we're taking three neighbors away from me and you, right? Like, so we, we're two sides of the same transaction edge. We take three, la- three jumps away from either of us and we aggregate the Im- information inwards. And when we get to us and we have our final states, like, you know, multiple steps into the, into this, um, algorithm. Um, essentially, what we want to do now is we want to take these states and we want to apply a multi layer perceptron on top of them to determine whether or not our, you know, transaction is fraudulent. And it doesn't have to be an MLP. It can be other stuff. You can just take the dot product mm-hmm. of those two vectors. Um, but, Essentially that, that, that's a, that's a good example, right? It's our, our, our transaction network. We're looking at three tops away and we're using our local context to determine like, hmm, are these guys likely to have a transaction between them?
1: So are you adding additional information compared to like, like my question is, why wouldn't you use, you know, a traditional approach, like a logistic regression or something yeah, like that? Yeah, why that's a good would? Question.
0: Uh, so accuracy is really important in fraud. Um, you both want to have low levels of fa- false positives and false negatives for, for different reasons, uh, right? You, you don't want you don't want fraud to be fraud to be flying under the radar, but you also don't want a system that's really aggressive and locking people out of their accounts for going to shop at a new grocery store. Um, so uh, essentially, what we you know why we don't use logistic regression is logistic regression. Only works on a bounded scope, right? Like it needs to have a fixed width input vector, and the encoder portion of a of a graph net network. First of all, it can it can transfer an entire graph into a fixed length of input vector, but that's not really the point of what I'm saying. The reason we don't use logistic regression is it doesn't consider context, right? It doesn't consider exhaustive local context. So, for example, um, maybe you have five connections and I have two, right? If we wanted to, you know, for example do, if we wanted to feed all that into a logistic regression model, we need to basically, um, we need to basically like feed into a model of only people that have five and two connections, (laughs) um, because the, the input width is, is not fixed. So graph neural networks allow you to take like very unstructured, very expansive data and transform it into valuable insight.
1: So do you think it's, outperforming like given it has a lot of data enough data it would probably outperform a classical model
0: oh yeah absolutely well i it, and not only that not only um outperforms maybe not the right word um because these models can exist in parallel so for example there's a twitter paper called twin and they use a graph model to embed their entire follower network every follower every um you know like every tweet they're liking is embedded as a fixed length vector. So, so basically the model, you use the model encoder, which is something that transforms input into a fixed size output. You use the encoder on the entire Twitter graph. And now every node is represented as a vector, right? And that, you know, like let's say you want to use an actual use model to predict how likely it is that I should follow someone. Mm-hmm. When that happens at, you know, at call time, essentially what happens is you take the um uh you take the entities involved right you say this user and this user you take the representations that your graph neural network has generated and you can feed that to a logistic regression model because now each user is represented as a fixed link vector and you know you can use those representations in order to use with a downstream model so it's it's not like it end to end these models are competing with you know logistic regression or or other forms of machine Mm -hmm. learning It's actually used in conjunction with other forms of machine learning because the representations that graph neural networks can can generate are fixed size. So they can be ingested by most of the models out there, right? Like it's a a useful tool for taking very unstructured, very unbounded scope data and putting it in a package that other models can understand.
1: I feel like, yeah, thanks for this. That's super clear. Um, It makes, yeah, I think this quite easy to understand. One thing that I I kind of realize, it's been, it's becoming popular, but only quite recently. Do you know why that's the case that we start, we start talking quite a lot about graph neural networks. They weren't as popular like five years ago.
0: Yeah, so uh, I think the first, I mean, graph neural networks, I believe were proposed a while ago. Um, but uh, as, as is the case with uh, most neural networks, they are only as good as their hardware and software support. So, um, Mm uh, there are two reasons we're seeing them a lot recently. Uh, first of all, uh, frameworks like PyTorch geometric and deep graph library, which are the two main frameworks to build, uh, graph neural networks have taken off, like they're actually reaching like a nice maturity. Like DGL is going to be in its 1.0 version in January, which is very exciting. And PyTorch geometric is, you know, has had a number of big releases and, and, and has support for problems that actually matter at scales that matter right um and the other reason that we're seeing the more is we're seeing some really big wins like uh for example there's a model se3 transformer you can check it out on our nvidia deep learning examples uh github repository um se3 transformer is very effective at predicting uh based on the computation or the the molecule or sorry the molecular graph of uh a, a, you know a given molecule uh, the properties of that molecule. So like the cytotoxicity or, you know, stability or other attributes that you, you know, attributes of interest. Uh, so we've already had some really big wins in graph neural networks and th- we're increasingly realizing that graph structured data is very expressive. Um, so like there's, you know, people are basically realizing like, well, structuring your data as a graph is a great way to store moderately and structured data in, in, in for the form of transactions. And, graphs are very expressive on this data type, which is why they're, you know, growing in popularity because we're realizing that, that, that this data, this type of data structuring is, not, is useful. And also uh, the models on top of it are achieving good accuracy and, and, are, and are achieving positive results. Like the twin paper I mentioned earlier, um, Twitter proved that when it was applied, um, when the, just just using the representation generated the model, the model's not used online at all. It's not used at inference time at all. Using just the embeddings that are generated by it, Uh, it provides like significant uplift to all the downstream models it's fed to moderately universally, like their ranking models, their, uh, candidate generation models, like all these different types of models that they're applying that are core to their business metrics are being improved by just using graph embeddings.
1: So social network is also a big area where. Oh
0: yeah. yeah. So, so to clarify what the really big applications right now that, that, you know, it looks like are, um, Social networks are obviously like social, social networks and recommendation are, are really big. Um, fraud detection is also really big because, uh, fraud has a couple of interesting problems that makes it more amicable to representation learning. And uh computational drug discoveries is another huge one. Um, and then there are a couple of other tasks that are also of interest, like, um, uh, entity resolution, basically taking, uh, like, uh, like, let's say like, like a networking network like like, like uh, you on your Wi-Fi or in, within your company's network, figuring out based on your activity, who you are, is is another application of neural networks that's, that's gaining in popularity.
1: What are you personally working on then? You gave a bunch of examples. What are you doing at NVIDIA?
0: Yeah, so um, I'm in the enviable position of working on a lot of these at the same time. So we've worked on models that work on recommendation, We've worked on models that work on, um, um, fraud. We've worked on models and workflows that, that work on entity resolution and, and computational drug discovery. But there's this core realization that my team made a while ago, which is, um, generally building and scaling, uh, graph models requires a lot of domain specific knowledge. And, uh, a lot of our team, you know, may not have that domain specific knowledge and, adding to that, customers picking up a graph neural network may not have that domain-specific knowledge either. So what we've been working on, and and, and this is public, I can talk about it, um, is a uh, framework in order to uh, essentially sit on top of both of the common uh, graph frameworks and uh, make them sort of like PyTorch Lightning, where you're more defining the workflow itself than the nitty-gritty of like oh how am how am i going to uh you know shard my data or how am i going to represent my data and make sure that it doesn't get copied like minimizing co- like minimizing copies or or uh, other optimizations like that we want to abstract that away from the user and make it so that you can define a graph workflow in in 15 lines of code um, because currently right like there's a lot of stuff that you have to do to get a graph to work. Like you have to like define like what the set of IDs in the test set is and the train set. And you have to, um, you have to make sure that the graph is not copied more than once, because if it's copied more than once, you're like, graphs are huge computational structures that have to be stored in memory. Right? So if you have multiple copies of the graph, you're basically like losing out on the ability to have like a large graph because you've halved the size that's available. Um, so, like minimizing copies and using advanced features from NVIDIA, like universal virtual addressing, where the the GPUs have, uh, you know, uh, have the same memory addressing space as as the CPU or as as the, the system memory, um, stuff like that drastically improves the experience for users on of graphical networks and doesn't require them to have the systems knowledge or the arcane knowledge of, of Hydrogeometric or DGL in order to scale their problems, or in, in order to like take, their, take the models they're working with to the scale that they want to use.
1: Cool, so I want to ask a few questions now on your career in general before we end the episodes. Yeah. The first one is actually, yeah, probably a funny one. Let's say that you're at a table and you can choose anyone in the ai space to sit next to you and enjoy the meal with you who would you choose and what would you talk about
0: um that's a good question um, give me 2 seconds to think
1: um
0: so there's um, there's a scientist at deepmind Um, So I I should clarify, like in, in, in the space of graph neural networks, um, there are quite a few like really, really prominent people. Uh, So there's like Yuri Leskovec who was at Stanford and, uh, and he, uh, he, he's been responsible for a lot of core research. There's um, uh, who else? There's, you know, Matthias Faye, who is the, the creator of PyTorch Geometric. There are, um, you know, many people on the DGL team at, at, Amazon that have worked on it. Um, and, but there's, there's one guy and, and I, I've met a lot of the people in grass. There's one guy I've I haven't met. I would love to get lunch with Peter Velikovic. Peter, if you're watching this, you know, let's, let's grab lunch. <laughs> uh, he works at DeepMind. He's, uh, he, in my opinion, uh, a lot of the work he's done at, within Google at, at DeepMind has been very affirming of Graphical networks in domains that like, other people aren't working on, like he worked on using graph neural networks to help the routing algorithm for Google maps. Um, uh, and I think that generally his work has been very, you know, uh, interesting in the sense that like, he's working in a domain of GNNs that is like not, it's very science-based and 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 i've enjoyed that and and you know of course there are a billion other people i'd like to uh connect with but but peter's work and um you know his uh his career are very interesting he's he's incredible
1: so we talk a lot about deep learning and for many people i think this could be quite a scary field you know data science ai is already like not easy to get into but deep learning seems like another level Mm-hmm. So what would be your advice for someone who wants to get into deep learning? How would you yeah, get into deep learning? And is it really as intimidating as it sounds?
0: Um no, it's it's not intimidating at, at all. Um or it shouldn't be. Um the reason behind this is that, you know, like there are hundreds, thousands, maybe tens or hundreds of thousands of people that have gone To work on the frameworks that underlie deep learning and make it easy. So, uh, you know, the contributors to PyTorch, the contributors to TensorFlow, the contributors to all these optimization libraries, Optuna, and and, and all these things. And and their goal, their sole goal is to make a framework that works for developers and um, therefore works for you. Um, So, picking up and playing with with deep learning is not hard. The second thing is, Uh, while math is very important for, for deep learning, right? Like it's, it's essentially core to everything. Um, The math itself in papers is like, once you get the notation down is it's, it's all present in the paper. A lot of papers are just self-contained. It's like, here's the math behind what we're doing and you know, here's how it's applied. So if you, even if you're, you know, not very advanced in math, as long as you understand like calculus derivatives, integrals, um you know differential equations. Uh, if you're able to understand that, and those are self-teachable, by the way, like they're they're, they're not inaccessible. Um, if you're able to self-learn that and just work on like work your way through a paper, the math's all there. It's not like there's some hidden element that's being that, you know, there's there's no hidden sauce that's being hidden from you. Like academic research on, on deep learning is very upfront with like here's the math behind it. And sometimes here's the code behind it, um, and you know what I'd recommend to just get into it is you know if you're interested in a, in a certain domain like diffusion for example read the read the seminal papers read like you know uh, I don't know what I actually don't know what the first diffusion paper was um, but read read these papers understand that understand first of all take a read for, through understand it conceptually like don't don't try and understand the math um, that that comes a little bit later. Uh, once you've read through conceptually and you understand it at a conceptual level, read through the math to understand how the math relates to the concepts that you're you know dealing with. Um, and uh, you know if you apply that iteratively in the in the scientific way, like the slow and steady you know building off of common known good way, um, it all just becomes intuition, right? Like it's all mathematical and and structural intuition.
1: Yeah, I feel you just need a bit of time, go through it little by little, but like even standard deep learning, like neural nets, if you start with that, it's, it looks super complex because you've, you've got all those layers, but in the end, it's just chain rule, you know, and you keep applying the same thing all the time. And so if you understand the overall concept, you will get things quite, quite easily. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So let's finish the episode with just one advice. If you had one advice for someone to progress in their career, what would it be?
0: Um, be more confident. Um, I think that a lot of people are are underconfident for no good reason. Like they see themselves as like ants among giants. Right? It's like oh wow, like all these people around me are so talented, and like I'll never reach them and and whatnot. No, I mean those people started from somewhere too, first of all, second of all, the other proportion of confidence is being confident. So there's confidence to start, right? Which is, is, is a lot. And then there's confidence to just be active and social about your academic interests, right? Like a lot of how I've gotten into deep learning and have enjoyed it has to do with the fact that I have gone out and and met people in the deep learning space who maybe initially didn't seem accessible to me. Right. Like these people, like, I'm like, Oh wow. You're like, you know, on, on the, you know, you know, on the backs, you're, you're a giant and I'm like a tiny ant. Why would you talk to me? Um, But then I realized it's just like, they're people too and and showing an academic and like intellectual uh, vivacity. And, and, and I, I like to say like ravenousness, right? Like you're just consuming is, you know, like people love to help that. They love to talk about what they're working on and, and they love to share and they love to help. Uh, for the most part, there are some people that don't, uh, don't push them too hard. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, for the most part, if you reach out to someone and say, Hey, I love your work. You know, like, do you want to go to coffee or talk and, and, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's chat about it. Um, you know, the worst they do is say no. And it's not really like they're not offended by you asking, right? It's, it's just like, Hey, you know, like, can I treat you to coffee? Sure. Let's, let's do it. Um, and that, that, you know, generally is my, my big piece of advice. Don't be, don't be afraid. Like you are, you are a cool person, I'm sure. Um, and you know, if you show that you're interested in something, people will want to talk about their work to you.
1: Yeah. I think that's a super good point. Like two things based on this. The first one is, yeah. Yeah. You often kind of underestimate yourself and you would think, oh, um, I'm doing mistakes and things like that. And you will see this super great and famous person that's, and you will think, oh, they're for sure, they're never doing any mistakes. They've got everything figured out. And no, they're also humans and they are like you and they would make mistakes. Uh, No one is perfect. And with social media and things like that, it's sometimes difficult to realize that, but yeah you're a human being like them. And if they've done it, you can do it as well.
0: Yeah, I actually, you know, there is, there is one other piece of advice I've, I've given before that sort of corresponds to this, right? Like deep learning, I feel like is a very, as I mentioned, it's very trial and error. And oftentimes your experiments will have failures. Like your, the hypothesis will be proven false. So what I recommend is to keep a failure journal i keep a failure journal and you know for a given project and i will record all my failures in it uh self for, for two reasons the first reason is, is obvious if i see that failure again i can just go go back and reference that failure journal that's super easy the second reason is that it provides me for context in the future you know the problems that i've overcome in the past and, and the, the approach, the amount of approaches I tried as a reminder that, you know, like, like being like persevering and, and staying, sticking with a problem generally leads to good results. Like, you know, experiment one, experiment two, experiment three, experiment four, experiment five, like 20 experiments in you're like, oh, experiment 21. I, you know, I found the solution to my problem. I found where the bug was in the code. And you can sort of sit on, sit on that mountain of failure and, 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 realize that your success came off of the back of those failures, Um, which is useful for realizing that like human beings, natural state is failure. And if you keep engaging that state, if you learn eventually you'll reach success.
1: Yeah, no, definitely agree. And you actually get to learn a lot from mistakes much more than when you, when you succeed at something or when, you know, find a solution and you don't fail yeah you learn from it but you learn so much more when you make mistakes mm-hmm. so yeah definitely i think that's a great point actually i should probably keep one journal as well well kyle thanks a lot it was really great to have you here on the show have a great day in the us and yeah hope to keep in touch and see you soon
0: sounds good see you soon